Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we have a very enlightening conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. And we begin with a letter from Delaware talking about the rich farmland that still exists there. We regard ourselves as an urban country, but in fact there are still vast acreages of farmland and in many regards we not only feed ourselves, but feed the world. And Jefferson, of course, believed that everyone should feed themselves before feeding others, that independence required us all to grow at least some of our own food. He also speaks to us about banning books. Jefferson believed that parents have a responsibility to, to manage the education of their children, and just how that fits with public education and the reign of experts is a difficult subject in democracy. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, we received an inquiry from a Mr. Irwin Weeks. He writes, Dear Mr. Jefferson, why did you not give advice to posterity as Washington, Franklin, and Madison did? I didn't take myself very seriously. I saw myself as a public servant called upon to be the president of the United States. It wasn't against my better judgment, but it's not something I necessarily would have wanted in my life. I called the presidency splendid misery and likened it to a blizzard. I would have preferred to be back at Monticello with my books and my grandchildren and my gardens and my um, tools and inventions. I served between 1801 and 1809. I think I helped to restore the principles of the revolution. I called my election the second American Revolution, not because of me, but because of the voice of the people who said they they had had enough of the kind of high-toned federalism that was represented by Alexander Hamilton and, to a certain degree, even by George Washington and John Adams. I balanced our books and reduced the national debt by 37%. I reduced the size of the Army and the Navy. I restored the balance of the Tenth Amendment so that the states were less ignored under my administration than they had been during Mr. Hamilton's time as, as America's prime minister. I left office at a time of some international uncertainty in 1809, and Mr. Madison unfortunately had to face all that and, and to fight a second war of national independence. But when I thought about America, I thought two things. First of all, I have nothing particular to say. The president, I mean, Washington, of course, must say what he believes is his legacy and, and to try to shape the destiny of the country. He's he's more important than all of us combined. Uh, I'm not sure that Madison and Monroe and Adams need to have a farewell address of any sort. I certainly didn't need to have one. And and to the extent that, that I was going to leave a message to the future, I left it. It's called the Declaration of Independence. I can't improve upon that. The Declaration of Independence says that people are born with rights. Those rights must be respected by any government. That any government that disrespects those rights in a systematic way is corrupt and should be overthrown as peacefully as possible and with as much violence as required. 
that people should be volatile and, and eternally vigilant because governments inevitably swell and, 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 and intrude upon our happiness to keep them efficient, to keep them honest, to keep them frugal, and to keep them, above all, respecting our natural rights is the duty of our citizenship, and it's a hard duty. And so that's my, that's my farewell address. I wrote it in June and early July of 1776, but nothing I could have said in March of 189 would have improved upon that. And it seems to me that uh, you have to be a person of much, much greater stature than I was to deserve a farewell address, sir. Well, Mr. Jefferson, I guess I have to disagree somewhat with the premise of the listener's question. Um, we have your letters, sir, and they are filled with thoughts for posterity. Yes, and, and, and I knew this. So late in my life, uh, I organized my letters and made a few adjustments here and there. Uh, I knew that my biography would be written from my letters. I knew that my philosophy would be extracted from my letters. And I was, I will admit, a, a, a gifted letter writer. And I was able to outline in correspondence with John Adams or James Madison or others how I saw the world. And I knew those letters were important, so I saved them in chronological order and made sure that when biographers got to them, they wouldn't have a just a box full of stuff, that it would be in the most orderly possible fashion so that it would make things easy for anyone trying to explore my life and achievement. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author, Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and seated across from me is President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson, we haven't spoken for quite a while. It's, it's so good to see you, sir. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I was out in my small patch of earth I call a garden the other day and thinking of you and wondering what sort of end-of-the-season preparations you are making at Monticello in your gardens. Well, of course, the ice ran out uh, in late summer. You know, we try to keep ice through the year, but it's very difficult to do, and such ice as remains in the ice house is, uh, uh, is, is no longer um, very palatable. We smoke meat. You know, we slaughter animals and smoke their meats and sometimes uh, dry it. We have root cellars where we can put potatoes and, uh, and other things. But preservation of garden food is extremely difficult in my time. And so it, it creates a problem. Fortunately, we can grow garden vegetables about eight and a half or nine months per year, sometimes even a little bit longer at Monticello. Uh, but drying smoking 
are the essential methods of preservation, and that always reduces the flavor of these foods. Uh, but we have very little uh, choice. So you know, we wrap up the garden, we t take out those things which, which won't survive a freeze, and continue to grow lettuce and anything else that might still grow uh, as the, the waning light of the autumn continues. Preservation of food must have been a huge part of the tasks of your gardens. Well, we, we had ice houses, uh, but they're very inconvenient. So workers, by which I mean enslaved people, had to go down into the Shadwell, the creek, or ponds, and cut out large blocks of ice, which in itself is a very uh, laborsome and tedious business, and then haul them by wagon up to the house where there was a pit, uh, an ice cellar, and there they would use burlap and straw to pack this in in such a way that it would have an insulation effect and assume that the constant temperature there, would, which would be 50-some degrees, coupled with that insulating material would keep the ice relatively um, intact through much of the winter. But uh, compared to your technologies, uh, it's almost infinitely more laborsome. I know, sir, that you have always uh, wished Americans to be self-dependent, to grow their own food when they can. And uh, we got a letter from Mr. Adam Hoffman I wanted to share with you. He writes, uh, I was driving through the farmland of Delaware, where I live, and I saw field after field of corn, wheat, barley, and soybeans. The mid-Atlantic countryside, what is left of it, is just beautiful this time of year, just before harvest time. You really get to see how bountiful this land can be and he says, the small farmer is still alive and well here. I thought you would enjoy that, sir. Indeed. The soybeans were not something that we grew in my time. But those other grains, of course, it's the miracle of agriculture that planting X grains of wheat will produce X times 100. Uh, that this is what agriculture is about. It's where the real wealth of the world is produced. You know, when, a, when a banker makes a loan, there's a financial profit, but there's no wealth produced. I'm a student of the economic school known as physiocracy, a French school, and it argues that all wealth comes from the earth, either in minerals that we mine or in agricultural products or trees or, or other productions of the earth. And those who cooperate with those natural rhythms, those natural laws, are the choicest of all of our citizens. And so the farmer, I said, is the chosen person of God because he is working with the, the fertility of the earth to multiply wealth and then share it with the rest of the community. Whereas the stock jobber, the speculator, does no real work. He's just exploiting capital on his own behalf. And I understand that's how capitalism works, but it doesn't actually produce wealth, and it certainly doesn't produce moral happiness. Mr. Hoffman also has a question for you, sir. He wants you to talk about the whiskey tax and the rebellion that ensued on the frontier. He wants to know if you were in favor of such a direct tax from the federal government while you were a member of Washington's cabinet. Now, this was uh, Colonel Hamilton at work, so I'll give the briefest explanation I can. Of course, the government needed tax revenue, 
some of it came from land sales in the west and some came from tariffs at, um, at the atlantic ocean at port but in order to get enough tax revenue to bring down the national debt hamilton devised the whiskey tax uh, which he regarded as a sort of sin tax or luxury tax and whiskey coming over from the the trans appalachian region to the population centers like pittsburgh or philadelphia or boston would be taxed by the federal government. Well, the farmers who were doing this objected, and they were right to object because they felt they were being singled out. They couldn't transport their grain easily to market because they had to get it across the Appalachian Mountains, and so they distilled it instead into whiskey, which is much more portable and doesn't uh, deteriorate, and they carried that whiskey across the mountains and sold it to willing buyers. They felt that this was an agricultural practice that made good sense given the lack of roads and infrastructure of our time, and that for Mr. Hamilton to single them out as opposed to a, someone who was growing oats or growing potatoes or, or growing cucumbers was a discriminatory tax. And so they asked for relief. They believed that the First Amendment gave them the right to um, petition for redress of grievances. Hamilton and his minions were unmoved by this, and they began to enforce this uh, this very divisive whiskey tax. And so finally, when they couldn't get any relief, the farmers of western Pennsylvania, and to a certain degree other states, including Virginia, rose up and stopped the collection of such taxes. This was a rebellion. It's called the Whiskey Rebellion. It began in 1794. Um, I did not have the same level of commentary on this that I had on Shea's Rebellion of 1786, where I said I like a little rebellion now and then. But I generally supported the whiskey farmers because they were right that they were being discriminated against. The, the thing about a tax is that it must affect everyone equally and not single out one sector of the economy for special um, burdening. And um, if Hamilton had understood agriculture or if he'd understood the, the spirit of, of our Western people, he probably would not have done it. M Mr. Hoffman also asks if you had heated disputes with Mr. Hamilton's. It sounds as if you did. It was later said that we fought like two cocks in the cabinet of George Washington as if this were, you know, um, a cockfight. That's not really true because both of us were gentlemen. So there was no shouting, there was no uh, finger-pointing or open accusation. We, we, we were gentlemen. But we did have strenuous disagreements, and Hamilton talked for victory. You know, his concern was always to prevail. He was more interested in his own ambition and his own political success as the favorite son of George Washington than I think he was of Commonwealth interests. So I was always at a disadvantage in these conversations because I am the more polite of the two, more averse to conflict of the two, more likely to uh, to try to persuade than to bully. And Hamilton, frankly, had a closer relationship with the president at this time than I did. And so he almost always prevailed. And I felt that his ideas were simply the wrong ones. He tilted towards Britain. He wanted a large central government. He wanted a large peacetime establishment of an army. He was in favor of a significant national debt. 
He wanted to uh, favor uh, industry over agriculture. Uh, he was not particularly uh, committed to helping our Western territories and Western states thrive. Uh, he was a broad constructionist of the Constitution, and I'm a strict constructionist. And so in almost every way, Colonel Hamilton was arguing for an America that I didn't want to live in. It was an America that looked like a kind of New England, but with a homegrown elite led by Colonel Hamilton as its prime minister. And I thought that the revolution, uh, which had been fought with such pain and blood and, and treasury, uh, gave us a chance to start civilization over again on a new, more rational footing. And I couldn't understand why this gifted man, and he certainly was a tremendously gifted individual, why he would give his mighty energies to creating a British-like, top-down American mercantile government and economic system. It seemed to me to be such a poverty of imagination. So we were pitted against each other. I almost always disagreed with him. Uh, he almost always... Uh, prevailed. So to conclude your answer to this question from Mr. Adam Hoffman, sir, it wasn't that you were opposed to taxes. It was that you were opposed to this sort of direct tax. Am I correct? I'm not opposed to taxes. Obviously, we need to keep them as small as possible because we don't want to take out of the pockets of our people the bread they have earned. You know, this is their money. They earned it by hard labor. Uh, most labor was difficult, backbreaking. Uh, life-shortening. And so to take people's money for schools or bridges or whatever it might be is important. But, but those who are doing this need to be deeply respectful of the work that's being done by these people to put food on the table for themselves and their families. And if there are taxes, then they need to be fair taxes. They need to affect every sector of the economy equally. And they mustn't single out a sector for special burdening. It just seems to me axiomatic that you wouldn't do this right. But I think the mistake Hamilton made was that he thought he was producing a really clever sin tax. You know, people love whiskey and tobacco, therefore you can tax them more or less as you please. He didn't realize that this was the way farmers west of the Appalachians were able to survive. But that is to transfer their grains into grain alcohol and transport that to market. And if Hamilton had understood that, he might not have changed his policies, but at least he would have been more aware of why the Whiskey Rebellion occurred. Very good, sir. We're going to take a short break. We'll return in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. And welcome back to you, Mr. Jefferson. It's good to be here, sir. Sir, if I might, I'd like to ask you a question of somewhat of a personal nature. Uh, and that is, what are you reading these days, sir? Oh, my. I read a, a good deal. I wouldn't say I read a book a day, but I have a very large library. And I'm mostly interested in two subjects, mathematics, uh, which may sound strange, but I, I'm a Baconian. I believe that if we measure the world and gather data, that this will invariably lead us down the right path in terms of social policy. So mathematics matter to me not per se, although they're beautiful in their simplicity, but as a way of measuring everything for social uh, amelioration. So there's that. And the other subject is, is ancient classics. So there are two types of ancient classics, really. Um, historical works, which I devour because they tell us what other Western civilizations have done or tried to do. And more importantly, they tell us what can go wrong in a society, particularly the Roman Republic uh, that died in the era of Julius and Augustus Caesar. So I read ancient history um, as a way of peering into a mirror, a sort of somewhat distorted mirror, but a mirror nevertheless that can help us set wise social policy in our time. And I also read literary classics, so the Odes of Horace, the greatest of all the uh, Roman literary uh, poets, or Ovid, uh, everyone knows he wrote the Metamorphoses, or the, the satires of, of Juvenal, um, maybe occasionally the, the erotic poems of Catullus, um, but in Greek literature, of course. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which, by the way, it's worth learning Greek, um, ancient Greek, to do. Um, it's a struggle to learn ancient Greek. I did it when I was a young man. But it's worth learning ancient Greek to read those two immortal epics in the original. And their counterpart in Rome is Virgil's Aeneid, which is another of the greatest works of Western civilization. I occasionally will turn to ancient philosophy, but uh, I find Plato to be tedious, uh, and and uh, spend very little time uh, trying to sort out his whimsies. As to modern literature, I don't read novels. Um, I regard that as the scandalous stuff that women who are bored with life read to help themselves go to sleep. So I, I don't read novels much, a handful of them, I suppose. I've read my Shakespeare I certainly have read all the modern poets from Chaucer through Samuel Johnson and Alexander Pope. But when I am happiest, I'm reading a book either of political economy, someone like Montesquieu, whose Spirit of the Laws was almost a recipe book for our Constitution, or I'm reading mathematics or uh, Greek and Roman classics. I, sir, enjoy reading history and uh, contemporary history. I don't know if there would be such a thing during your time. Oh, yes, there was. Uh, not very good. And, and many people came to me to as they were writing a history of the Revolution or a history of the Declaration of Independence and, and either asked me to sit for an interview or wanted me to write out an account by letter. Um, what happened was that 
the great John Marshall, whom you remember as the, the first great um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, my cousin, by the way, he wrote a five-volume biography of, of George Washington. John Adams called it a mausoleum. Um, it was a what what's known as hagiography. It was a saint's life. Washington could do no wrong. It was it was a, a flattering, um, uh, obsessive, um, you know, appallingly favorable biography of George Washington, which uh, was very hard on all of Washington's opponents, including at times me, and so I was afraid that that Marshall's five-volume biography of Washington would lay the groundwork for all subsequent histories of the American Revolution, and this would be a wild distortion. So I did two things. I collected um, conversations, gossip, uh, private notes that I had written through all this period into a kind of a, a collection called the Honest, uh, which was just a series of memories of conversations that occurred during these these key months and years, and I didn't publish that, but I but I left it for historians to discover, uh, and I also then encouraged Republican small R Republican historians like William Wirt to write a counter history of the Revolution that would not be uh, so slavish. Uh, in its praise of the Federalists and particularly of George Washington. I loved Washington, don't get me wrong, but he was a man like other men, and to make him a god on earth uh, and to vilify all of his uh, adversaries uh, was a, an, act of, um, an act that was deeply offensive to me by my cousin, John Marshall. So there were contemporary historians, Mercy Otis Warren, wrote a history of the revolution that so upset John Adams because she did not make him the hero of it that they wound up having a, a, a an epistolary argument, a fight that lasted several years. And you can imagine how many letters he wrote to her challenging almost every one of her statements about um, the details of the American Revolution and demanding that she rewrite portions of it to do uh, more respect to him. Sir, I'm I'm curious to know, uh, during your time, were there books that were banned, that were taken out of public circulation in, in order to prevent citizens from reading them? I can't think of any, not in the United States. But in Europe, there was still a great deal of this. Uh, the Inquisition continued to exist. Um, the, the Index of Prohibited Books of the Papacy continued to exist. And so Catholic Europeans were forbidden to read certain sorts of books, and in some instances they were burned. Uh, there were licensing procedures in Paris and in London for the presses, and although they were loosening in my time, people had to get a, a license to publish a book, and that meant that a censor the censor wasn't necessarily um, uh, hostile, was going to look over that manuscript before it was published. I, I know Voltaire, as a young man, he's a generation older than I was, but and I never met him, unfortunately, but when he was a young man, he wrote some satirical squibs about such and such an aristocrat, and um, a, a short time later, he was hauled out of a restaurant and beaten nearly to death by thugs in the employ of that French aristocrat. So freedom of expression 
was an ideal of the Enlightenment, and it was mostly actualized, realized in America, where very little of this occurred. Sometimes there was controversy, but there was not censorship or um, public violence. But in Europe, it still existed in our time, which, you know, which is one of the reasons that people need to remember how important the invention of America is, that Europe could conceive of these ideals, that someone could publish what he pleased, that someone could worship the God of his choice, that people could petition their government for redress of grievances, that people should not be put into prison and the, and the key thrown away, that there should be habeas corpus. These principles of the Enlightenment were very unevenly rooted in European life, and they were more practiced in the breach than in the inclusion. In the United States, in this our happy republic, those ideals found fertile ground and took root and became the standards of civilization for the entire world, certainly for Europe. And I think Americans in your time sometimes forget what a revolutionary new start this was for human society and that the United States was the place where Enlightenment ideals uh, were able to spread themselves and prove their efficacy. Uh, this is extremely important. And your question about censorship reminds me that in Europe, People had to look over their shoulders before they gave something to the press. Uh, that was not the case in the New World. Mr. Jefferson, it would be safe to say that you would oppose banning books, even if the ideas were ones you strongly disagreed with. Am I correct? Yes. In, in the preamble to the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which was published in 1786, I say that the truth is great and, and will prevail when left to itself, that the uh, that when government gets involved in the free exchange of ideas, it inevitably distorts that process, and that the only ideas that need government support are bad ones, that in a fair contest, truth will win over falsehood, that good sense will win over nonsense, and, and that we need to be confident that the truth um, is more potent in the long run than anything that is untruth or superstitious uh, or conspiracy. So I, I believe very strongly that, that this trial must be made. Look, I suffered. You know that I was accused of being an atheist all of my life, which is not at all true, that I was uh, accused of being a dangerous Jacobin, that my principles were too radical, that I'd been Frenchified, that I had stayed in France too long, that I, that I was not reliable in some sense of order and, and protection of property. I was accused of being a Democrat, you know, that I championed the rights of white men without property base, and so on. And there was there were personal scandal mongers who attacked my private life, as you know. And so, of course, I would have loved to shut down those presses and prosecute those ruffians who People who didn't know me, who who had no idea who I was, but nevertheless wrote scurrilous attacks on my life and character, and 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 damaged the, the the serenity of my children and grandchildren and my closest friends. 
of course I would have liked to stop them. Everyone wants to shut down that kind of abuse. But to do so is to enter a, a kind of road to authoritarianism. And the question I always ask is, who gets to decide? Do I get to decide what gets published? Uh, does George Washington get to decide? Does Benedict Arnold get to decide? Does Aaron Burr get to decide? This is a power that can be very easily abused by anybody who embraces it. And so the best thing for us to do, and believe me, it was agonizingly hard, is to withdraw, say nothing, and assume that the public will sort out uh, these vicious attacks that are made in the press from time to time, and largely that was the case. There is a minority of Americans now who support banning certain books, um, but they're very vocal. And primarily, they're concerned about ideas presented to their children. How do you respond to that? Well, I do think that's a particular problem. I had two children who lived to be adults. I educated them myself. They were my daughters. You would say I homeschooled them, but it wasn't really like that. I had previously been tutored by Scott's Anglican clergyman uh, in the neighborhood of, of my boyhood home at Shadwell. Uh, so I had some formal schooling, but it wasn't public school. These were these were just small, private, informal academies that clergymen would uh, operate during the their free time. So there was no public education system, and so it was simpler then. But if I wanted to educate my children, I would put in front of them books that I thought would help them um, form their adult character. I wouldn't put books in front of them that were scandalous or salacious or vicious or uh, that espouse totalitarianism, for example. So I would be shaping the curriculum as a homeschooling parent. But when you have children come together into a school, and so 10 families hire a tutor, now they have to collectively decide what shall be taught and what shall not be taught. And I don't think that the parents should simply say to the tutor, you know better than we do, go ahead, educate our children, we'll stay out of it. That would be a dereliction of duty, and family is exceedingly important as, a, as its own sovereignty. So I think in a case like this, parents do have a role to say, I pay taxes, my children go to school, I don't want them exposed to X. Now, that can be a, an open debate, and it can be a civil debate, and many times parents are wrong, but they should be persuaded, not vetoed. So this is a this is a very significant problem because nothing is more sacred than family and nothing is more important than the education of our children. And I don't think that parents should be supine and just say, well, whatever the experts in the education decide is the right thing for our children, I guess we'll just swallow it. I think parents should be loud, should should get good information. Well, what you're saying, sir, is that parents have a responsibility and and there is a, a question that I'd like to present to you from Reed Schuler. He says, why does Jefferson have such a concern over a citizen's rights rather than their responsibilities? Well, I think responsibilities are, of course, important. You serve in some functions in your community, in justice of the peace, or you serve on a jury, or you um, join the militia during a dangerous time. Of course, we have we have responsibilities to voluntarily pay our taxes. 
uh, to uh, to abide by the laws of property and not steal each other's hogs and, and apples and chickens. Everyone who is in a polity, is in a social compact, understands rights and responsibilities. But I'm going to emphasize rights, and here's why. For the history of the planet, in all of the records we have, average human beings have been ground down to powder by aristocrats and clergymen and kings and so on. They have been abused, starved, beaten, forced to fight frivolous wars. The history of the world is the history of oppression of average people. And it's not until you come along in Britain to the Magna Carta, which was a very preliminary and aristocratic declaration of rights, and move towards greater and greater uh, state restraint in these ways until we get to something like the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights in the United States, which isn't the final word on the subject, but is very much closer to a final understanding of what rights we have by birth alone. By, by the accident of our birth, we are entitled to certain rights, and the state must not intrude. That's why I emphasize this. If the history of the world were the history of rights but weak responsibilities, I would take the other side. But the history of the world is oppression, and the rights of man had to be asserted at the end of a musket, at the end of a pitchfork, at the end of a, of a torch. The, the, the people in power don't give up their power happily. Remember, they had to cut King Louis XVI's head off before they could form a French Republic, and a similar thing happened in Britain in, in 1649 with Charles I. So I emphasize rights because they're the things that get abused and eliminated by by ambitious men. And most people, and I certainly feel this in, in the United States that I presided over, um, are quite are are quite eager to show their social responsibilities that they that they voluntarily obey laws they voluntarily uh, show up for jury duty uh, etc and so i don't think that that's in my time that that was in any significant danger very good mr jefferson uh, i thank you for this conversation uh, it's been a while since we've talked and i've enjoyed this very much i i so appreciate you sharing your your insights and your experience, sir. Oh, thank you, citizen. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we'll be speaking with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the man who portrays President Jefferson when he's here, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And now we shall welcome the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And, uh, it was so much fun to talk with Mr. Jefferson this week. Clay, thanks for that. I mean, I thank you, David, um, my friend, my dear friend, and the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. It's always a pleasure um, to, to have a conversation with you. And I'm in a kind of a funny mood today. Um, so less oratorical and more kind of just trying to figure out, well, how would Jefferson see that? You know, what what would Jefferson's response to that be in plain English? And so that's fun. It's fun to channel this stuff. You know, it's a it's weird. You, I've been reading Jefferson's letters again, and there are thousands and thousands of them, and they're magnificent letters. And reading, and you think, what an interesting, what an extraordinary man who... In one moment, he's writing about currency in Europe, uh, which he doesn't really understand. And then he's making lists of books for friends back in the United States. And then he's talking about flora and fauna and, and the mammoth and the mastodon and paleontology. And, and then he's talking about uh, affairs in Europe and whether the United States will be able to get any of its model economic treaties uh, accepted by Prussia or, or Portugal or the, the pirates of the of the Mediterranean. And then he's talking about agricultural practices back in Virginia and library classification systems and his desire to see more balloon rides in Paris and maybe the balloon can be made a, 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 a technology of transportation in the United States and what's going on in chemistry, what's going on in mineralogy, um, where he can get the most inexpensive uh, copies of, of Greek and Roman classics how to get books bound the way you want them when you're in a foreign country. And you just think, wow, this is, this is not Gerald Ford. This is not, well, uh, this is not Grover Cleveland. This is a man of just extraordinary uh, breadth and curiosity and purposefulness and earnestness. And it's, you know, it, we take it for granted. You know, you and I sit here and do this thing. I know you feel it too. It comes in waves, but I feel the wave of admiration for such a man and that you and I get to play him together. We get to play Jefferson. It's what... <laughs> yeah. How many Americans get to sit around and talk to a dead president? Well, I'm one of them. You know, I should say, though, you know, for new listeners to the Jefferson Hour, and we get new listeners all the time and, and we get correspondence from the, the question is, well, what about what about slavery? What about all those awful things Jefferson did? And, and believe me, if you are a new listener, that is something we deal with and, and quite a lot. However, I have found from previous experience that if if I go head on to Mr. Jefferson when you're in character, Clay, and really try to nail him about that, I'm in danger of him walking away from the conversation, which has happened. Just once. I think, David, that this is such a hard thing, and I, I don't want us to get drawn into it today either, but on the one hand, slavery has overwhelmed the discourse on Thomas Jefferson, and it should. It's a very complex problem. He doesn't emerge from it with much honor or integrity. It's deeply sad. It's tragic that this great man had this terrible complicity, and although he rattled around in it and, and squirmed some, he just really didn't have the wherewithal to 
to give his mighty energies to it, and even if he had, he might not have prevailed, but he could have done some personal things that he simply didn't, and he was addicted to luxury in such a way that perpetuated the the world of slavery at, at Monticello. So on the one hand, it, this subject deserves to bite and overwhelm Jefferson, and frankly, that's why we're moving sort of towards listening to America, to detach ourselves just a little bit from that. And on the other hand, we can't let that completely dissolve or erase Thomas Jefferson, that he's so interesting and so important in so many ways that it would be madness. I believe it would be national insanity for us to erase Jefferson or try to erase Jefferson. It's a form of national suicide to do such a thing because here's the man who envisioned the American dream. He wrote the most important words in our history. He helped to create our systems. He helped to create the mode of our presidency. He, at the University of Virginia, he created the campus, the academical village. You know, in so many ways, Jefferson is laying the groundwork for American life, the, the neoclassical um, architecture of our state capitals, uh, all but five states, is Jeffersonian. His influence as, and his importance as a, as a creative artist um, is, is overwhelming. You know, the way he privileged the agrarian, and we still do, we still privilege the family farmer because of Jefferson's deep commitment to, to family agriculture. So how do you keep it in balance? So just to quickly wrap this up by taking the University of Virginia, it's stunning campus. It's maybe the most beautiful campus in the country, certainly one of the top five. He designed it. Uh, he created the curriculum. He helped to hire the first professors. He helped to choose the books for the library. And the capstone was the rotunda, which is this magnificent uh, replica in miniature of the Pantheon at Rome. And yet, we know that every brick was baked by an enslaved man or woman, that the grounds were leveled by enslaved people, that the timbers were cut by enslaved people, uh, that the, the janitors and the, the cooks and the, the, the maids and the groundskeepers were all enslaved people. And so this is like the paradox in miniature. You go there and you think, this is a breathtakingly beautiful monument to the genius of this man. And yet it was made possible by forced labor of a people who were enslaved on the basis of their race alone, and the chances that they would not live and spend their whole lives in slavery approach zero. And we all know that slavery could only be held together with violence and the threat of violence, and that this is an injustice that is just so palpable that no American person can, or no person in the world, can fail to realize how fundamentally corrupt this is. And so there's your there's your paradox. So when people say, why don't you address this question? My view is, when don't we address this question? We always address this question because you have to. And and, and I and I don't even mind. I mean, I, I don't mind addressing it. It's important. I think it's essential. But on the other hand, I don't want it to become 52 times a year that we talk about slavery because then we may as well not do the program. 
if, if slavery is the only subject, if, it, if it's the overwhelming subject, then we should stop. Uh, because that's not what Jefferson was. and Well, he was. That's not all he was. Let's say that. Better. It was really good to talk a bit with Mr. Jefferson this week about banning books, and I'm sure you would have a lot to say about that as well. Um, but we, we also, he answered a, a letter from Reed Schuler about rights versus responsibility. And there's one other email that I really wanted to share with you. It came from Lois Riggins, and she writes, I'm 72 years old. For most of my life, I have believed that the Constitution was a marvelous document that kept our democracy on track. About four years ago, I began to realize that our Constitution was insufficient to protect our democracy. Our Constitution works when there are sufficient number of leaders and officials who act with integrity and goodwill. When people put the welfare of the country ahead of personal gain, when leaders are willing to destroy our democracy to hold on to power, we're in trouble. Great letter. Thank you, Lois. Absolutely right, uh, Lois, that we call these the norms, that there are certain responsibilities and norms that are not codified in the Constitution, but which are essential to uh, the life of a republic. And it only works if you have a commonwealth understanding. You don't have to have a great commonwealth understanding. You don't have to be a, you know, somebody straight out of a civics course. But you have to have the basic instincts of decency. And so these norms have been in place all the way back to the cabinet and the, and the presidency of George Washington. And almost every American political figure has, in the end, accepted the norms. But the norms are not enforceable. That's what we have learned. The norms are not enforceable because they're not codified in actual language in the Constitution. I thank Lois for that letter, and, and uh, we, we appreciate that so much. Uh, we also talked with President Jefferson, as I just mentioned, about books and book banning. And, banning uh, yeah. He didn't really come down hard on, uh, no, you should never, but he gave his reasoning uh, which is what I expected, and it was great to hear. I thought you you might want to add to that. I thought first of all, of course, uh, I'm I'm very alarmed by the the way the the violence and the uh, the verbal abuse that's taking place at these school board meetings around the country, the loss of civility and the violations of the process by the loudest and most angry citizens is really. Very upsetting. And as you know, people are leaving school boards or refusing to run for school board or city council or county commission now because of the sheer level of abuse that they're getting from angry citizens. And so this is part of the collapse that we're in. But on the other hand, David, if I'm a conservative Christian parent and my child comes home and the, and, and the, and the teachers are talking about things that I think are, are really very private things. I may be upset with that school. I, I, I was letting Jefferson be Jefferson today, but I too have some concerns about this because education is such a it's such an intimate business. And I personally, having watched my child be educated in our system, have very limited I don't ha I don't have unlimited respect for the so called experts on what a curriculum should be. This is a difficult one. I've been writing a little bit about it in governing.com, and I urge our listeners to go to governing. I write a Sunday article 
I wrote one on Salman Rushdie, the Anglo-Indian novelist who had the fatwa for his book, The, the Satanic Verses, and was recently um, severely injured at Chautauqua, New York, uh, by an Islamic extremist of some sort. This is a real danger, but what we're learning is that fundamentalists, and the fundamentalists are those who issued the fatwa against Rushdie and the fundamentalists who turn up at a school board meeting in Omaha, they are not rational beings. They are they're extremists. That's what fundamentalism is. And so they're using their extremist views to say, I don't want to be in a debate about this. I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm, going to, I'm telling you what I cannot tolerate. And I'm willing to up the ante, including violence if necessary, to achieve my aims. This is a sign of the times that we're in. You know, the cheerful statement attributed to Voltaire, Madam, I disagree with what you say, but I shall defend to the death your right to say it. <laughs> that all seems quaintly in the past to us now. And I just really deplore that. I think that young people are smart. They know they know nonsense from good sense. They they have they're more discriminating in many respects than their parents. I trust children to ingest a range of ideas and to know which ones to embrace and which ones to reject. But I do think that teachers, and there are some of them who proselytize from the front of the room, you know, are advocates from, for a certain culture politics, are bad teachers. This goes back to that letter from Reed Schuler that I presented to Jefferson about such a concern over citizens' rights rather than their responsibilities. Uh, essentially, what we're talking about is parental responsibilities when it comes to children. But, you know, I, w I would caution um, those who want to ban books, careful what you wish for, because once that door is open, they may ban books that bother you. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm struggling in how to say that correctly, but it, it won't just stop at what those who advocate for the banning of books. It'll, you mean it'll, 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 it would spread, or, or am I being naive? No, this is the, the whole question of, of who the guardian is. So I don't trust anybody to decide which books to read and which books not to read, period. I, I think that it is a... I hate to use the cliche, but it is a slippery slope. Once you go down that path, uh, then you're going to have the shaping of the truth by whom? Politicians? Fundamentalists? People who listen to Fox or MSNBC and get a notion? You know, people who don't do any investigation but simply fly off the handle um, because they have, they, some, they have some sort of instinct that something bad somewhere is happening? If, I'll, I'll close with this. I know we're out of time. If everybody who is against critical race theory would have to define it, there'd be a lot of silence in this country because people don't know what they're talking about, and yet they are extremely loud and angry about it. We should know what we're talking about. That's the, the core of the Jeffersonian. I just want to say as we close, David, first of all, thanks to you and to all of our listeners. We love getting questions from them. But when we started with um, the letter about uh, Delaware and, and Maryland and the ripening of the crops. Yes, from Adam Hoffman. Yeah, I just read yesterday that Ukraine feeds 500 million people. That the grains of Ukraine, which is the, the Great Plains of Europe, the, the, the breadbasket of Europe, that they feed 
half a billion people, and now they can't because of the war, which has shut down the ports. Some of them are reopening now. But there's a worldwide food shortage, and, and of course everyone knows spike in food prices because of the Ukraine war. And when I heard that 500 million people are fed by the fields of Ukraine, I was just stunned to think that Gosh. how it works. Not going to matter too much what's in your library if you can't if you can't feed your family. Just the the world. We thought that the world was impregnable to famine and pestilence and war. You know all those great things said by Yuval Harari and Homo Deus. Turns out that the world is still a very vulnerable place, and it takes a a man like Vladimir Putin to disrupt. Uh, a grain-producing country, whatever else Ukraine is, it is a grain-producing country, and in doing so has created a worldwide food crisis that may lead to actual starvation in some instances. And it, it seems like a very Jeffersonian point that food is the centerpiece of life and that farmers, including North Dakota farmers, are the ones that are are producing it for the rest of us, and we are all dependent on that now. Jefferson wanted you, David, to be able to feed yourself, which you somewhat can, and everyone to be able to feed themselves, which we don't. And be to become dependent in this way really reminds you of the fragility of life, and I think we're in an era where the fragility of life is really coming home to us every single day. So thanks to Adam Hoffman for that great letter about abundance in Delaware and Maryland. So thanks. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of Listening to America, also known as the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>